imagine there's no legal authority it's easy if you try oh oh sorry i didn't see you there uh this is scott shapiro and this is episode three class three of the jurisprudence course podcast today we will be discussing three topics three parts Part one, we'll begin by reviewing what we talked about last episode, and we will lay out the possibility puzzle, or sometimes I call the chicken-egg problem in jurisprudence. Part two, we will be discussing Hume's puzzle, which is another puzzle which all legal theories have to grapple with. And finally, we will begin talking about John Olson's theory of law and how it purports to solve the possibility puzzle and Hume's puzzle. Okay, so let's be... Last episode, we talked about the question, what is law? And we said that what the interesting form of that question was, what is the nature of law? That is, what we want to know is not the meaning of the word law, but the nature of the institution referred to by the word law. And we distinguish between two different senses of the notion of nature. One is that what we want to know is the essential properties of law. We want to know its identity. We want to know what makes law law and not something else. The other sense of nature that we're interested in is the necessary properties of law. That is those properties that law cannot fail to have. We also talked about how the debate between legal positivists and natural lawyers can be understood to be a debate about the necessary properties of law, in particular the question about what facts, legal facts, ultimately depend on. We said that legal facts, that is the facts about the existence or content of a legal system, does not is not those facts are not metaphysically basic, but rather depend on more metaphysically basic facts. And the debate concerned whether legal facts ultimately depend on social facts alone, which is the positivist position, or they depend on moral facts as well, which was the natural law position. Now, having set this up, uh, we might ask ourselves, how in God's earth are we supposed to answer this question? That is, how are we supposed to figure out what legal facts depend on ultimately, social facts or moral facts as well? Now, I say that what's really, what I love about philosophy is that you get presented this question, and it's, it's a question that seems like really important, really basic, but you have absolutely no idea how you would go about answering it. And one of the, some, to me at least, one of the things that I find so fun about philosophy is trying to figure out the handle. That is trying to figure out how are you going to make progress answering a question that really goes to kind of the fundamental nature of a thing in question. Not some superficial property, but it's underlying um, uh, thingness. And so one thing, one way to kind of 
get a handle on a philosophical question is to approach it via some puzzle, some paradox, which by trying to answer this puzzle or paradox, we can then get some insight as to how we might answer philosophical question we're interested in. So what I'd like to do in this part is to talk about the possibility puzzle um, or the or called the chicken egg puzzle. Now, let's just talk about the chi uh, chicken egg problems in general. This is a, something that always drives me crazy when people say, um, well, that's a chicken egg problem or that's a chicken egg puzzle. You know, what came first, chicken or the egg? Um, be clear that not every time do we want to know whether something came before something else. We want to know its order of priority. Are we interested? Is that a chicken egg puzzle? Um, the, a chicken egg puzzle is really a question about how either a chicken or an egg is possible. Let me let, let me. Um, let me just give you an example by talking about chickens. The idea is that if chickens, first of all, chickens hatch from eggs, but also chickens lay eggs. So it seems as if chickens can't be possible because if, a if you see a chicken, then it had to have come from an egg, but that egg had to come from a chicken that chicken had to come from an egg, but that egg had to come from a chicken, and it seems like we get an infinite regress. It's that we don't, we, we're looking for some kind of explanation as to how something can be if it depends on something else, which itself depends on the very thing that we're asking the question about. <clears throat> And we get this kind of chicken-egg puzzle when it comes to law. It seems as if that anytime there's a law, we think it had to have come from someplace, in particular some entity with legal authority, but in order for that entity to have legal authority, some rule had to have conferred that authority on that body, but that rule itself had to come from legal authority. So we get the same kind of infinite regress. Let me give you the example in terms of the United States Constitution. So if we, we could ask why, how does, a, uh, how does the United States Constitution exist? So you, let, 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 actually, let's begin with the law. So let's say Congress, in order to respond to the coronavirus a, a, a pandemic, enacts a major stimulus plan. And we, we want to know, like, by virtue of what is that stimulus plan legally valid? And so we probably go to something like Article 1 of the Constitution, probably Article 1, Section 8, subsection one and subsection three, uh, the spending clause, the borrowing clause, the regulation of interstate commerce. I mean, there's lots of constitutional provisions you might point to, but then somebody might say, well, okay, well, sure, but why is 
Article 1 legally valid? And you'd say, well, because the Constitution's been ratified. And then person say, well, like, so what if it's been ratified? And you'd respond, well, I mean, the Constitution has this thing called Article 7, which says that three quarters of the original states ratified the Constitution, then the Constitution's valid. And then the other person points out that Article 7 is part of the Constitution. So how does Article 7 confer authority on the states to validate the Constitution if it's itself part of the Constitution? It's, this is, it just seems like um, viciously circular. How can, um, how can a provision that's part of a document confer legal validity on the document that it's part of? What I what I what we see here is that we have this problem of trying to establish how law can exist and how legal authority can exist. And the way I put it um, in the in my book, legality is to is to show that there's this conflict between two basic and plausible principles of jurisprudence. Um, one I call the egg principle, the other one I call the chicken principle. The egg principle, so remember in chicken, chicken, chicken and egg, the eggs are the things that uh, create the chickens, so the, they're the rules. And then the chickens, they're the legal authorities. So the egg principle says that some body has power to create legal norms only if an existing norm confers that authority. So if somebody has legal authority, there had to be some egg, that is some rule, which conferred that authority. And then we have the chicken principle, which says that um, a norm conferring power to create legal norms exists only if somebody with power to do so created it. So essentially, somebody can have... Um, uh, I'm sorry, a rule exists, a legal rule exists, only if some legal authority created it. Now, you see the chicken and egg principles seem to either lead to some vicious circularity or an infinite regress. So we take a law, we take an egg, and then we say, well, here's a law. Well, but how did it come into existence? Well, According to the chicken principle, somebody with legal authority had to have created it, but according to the egg principle, some rule, some legal rule had to exist in order to create it, and then we either refer to the rule that the person just created to establish the validity of the legal authority's power, but that's that seems viciously circular. It's the 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 person can have legal authority to create a rule which confers power on him or her or their self because they don't have the power to do that before the rule exists. But so therefore we have to make reference to a different kind of rule and that seems to require there to be somebody else who had legal authority to create it, and you get the point. Now, we can imagine two ways 
of solving the chicken egg puzzle, or sometimes I call it the possibility puzzle, because it challenges the question. It challenges the idea that the that the law is possible or that legal authority is possible. We can imagine two ways to get out of this paradox. One is we can deny the egg principle. We can say no, no, no. Certain certain bodies have authority to create legal rules, even if there was no rule which conferred that authority. So that would be giving up on the egg principle, but accepting the chicken principle. Or we can get rid of the chicken principle. We can say that legal rules can exist, which confer legal authority, even if nobody created those rules. And we can, I mean, you can see that the, the, the paradox arises because we've accepted these two principles. And so the way out of it is to deny at least one of those principles. What we'll start with is with the theory of John Austin, who will reject the egg principle. What Austin will argue, and we'll talk about this in part three of this episode, is that law is possible because there is an ultimate authority, an authority which, who, who gets his legal authority not from some pre-existing rule, but by virtue of pure political power. Whether this works or not, uh, that'll be something we'll discuss, but the idea is that he rejects the egg principle and this ultimate authority he calls the sovereign and this is the way that he solves the chicken-egg problem. However, anyone who tries to solve the chicken-egg problem via social facts, which is exactly what John Austin does, will run into another problem, which I call Hume's puzzle. And that I will get to in the next part. Shut your goddamn traps. Kids, I'm trying to do a podcast. I've told you this. The world needs to know about analytical jurisprudence. Okay, let me unmute this. Hi, everyone. This is uh, part two of the Jurisprudence Podcast. And right now, I would like to talk about something I call Hume's Puzzle. In the last part, I described the chicken-egg puzzle. And I mentioned one positivistic solution to that puzzle. I will talk about it uh, a much greater length in part three. But what John Austin tried to do is he tried to say that what the law ultimately depends on is political power, brute political power. In other words, this is a positivistic solution because what he's doing is he is grounding legal facts ultimately in social facts, social facts of brute political power. Now, any attempt to solve the chicken-egg problem by reference to 
social facts alone, we'll run into something I call Hume's puzzle. And it's, its name derives from uh, what's sometimes called Hume's law, which is that you can't derive an ought from an is. So for example, let's say I tell my kids, you know, take, take your jacket when you go outside and they say, why? And I say, because it's cold outside. That's not a complete argument as to why they should take their coats because that they, sh- that they should take their coats, the ought, that they ought to take their coats, the normative conclusion has to be derived from, some, from something that has a normative premise that is a premise that tells you under certain conditions do the thing that's in the conclusion. But when I said, because it's cold outside, all I've done is stated uh, and is a descriptive statement. So when I said, it's cold outside, therefore you ought to take your code, that's not, that can't be a complete argument. There's a suppressed normative premise there, which is that if it's, co- if it's cold outside, well, there's a suppressed descriptive premise, which is if it's cold outside, you're more likely to catch cold or catch an illness. And then a normative premise that says that you ought not to catch cold, catch an illness. So in order to be able to derive the normative conclusion, which is you ought to take your coat, I have to at least be assuming in the background, and if I'm going to make it really explicit, I have to actually state a normative premise there too. I have to say you ought not to get cold or ought not to catch catch cold or to, 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 to be cold would be another normative premise. Or another normative premise is I'm your father and you're obligated to do as I say. The problem is that any positivistic solution to the chicken egg puzzle is going to run afoul of Hume's law. Because as I said, positivism says that legal facts ultimately depend on social facts alone, not on moral facts. But if the law and legal facts ultimately depend on social facts, then any kind of argument that establishes the existence of legal facts will, it seems, ultimately run into an argument that's missing a normative premise. When Austin says, the sovereign is somebody who has brute political power, that seems to be just a statement about what is the case. But the law seems to be normative. Claims about what you are legally required to do, or legally permitted to do, or legally empowered to do. These seems to be these seem to be normative claims. They seem to be claims about what ought to be the case. So it seems as if any positivistic solution to the chicken egg problem runs headlong into Hume's problem, Hume's puzzle, because by grounding all legal facts in social facts alone, the positivist has no access, is making no reference to a normative principle which would then allow 
somebody to derive a normative claim about what the law requires. Now, this is a this is a problem that only positivists run into. The natural lawyer does not have this problem because the natural lawyer thinks that legal facts ultimately are grounded in social and moral facts. Now, moral facts are normative facts. They're normative facts. They're facts about what you ought to do. Now, let me just address a, a, a question that students normally have at this point and a bunch of people sent me emails and comments on Twitter asking me this question, which is, what if you don't believe in moral facts? Let's say you, you're an error theorist about moral facts. Let's say you believe that there are no such thing as moral facts. Or let's say you're an expressivist and you think that moral facts don't exist. Does that mean that you have to be a legal positivist? And the answer is yes. Um, if you don't believe in morality as an objective realm as consisting in moral facts, then the only way you can be a natural law theorist is if you deny that legal facts exist. But if you think that legal facts exist, then you really can't be a natural law theorist. Historically, many legal positivists have been drawn to legal positivism precisely because they have been skeptical about the existence of moral facts. So if you are skeptical of moral facts and you believe that legal facts exist, then natural law theory is not going to be a very attractive position for you. Now, there are ways out of this problem, and maybe I will talk about it much later. You can get much more sophisticated when it comes to characterizing what natural law is or what the question of jurisprudence is to allow people who are skeptical about moral facts to be natural law theorists anyway. But for our purposes, um, if you are skeptical about moral facts, you really don't want to be a natural law theorist. Let me address one more question, which has come up uh, numerous times as well, which is, what if you thought that legal facts depend on social and moral facts, but you think that moral facts themselves are constituted by social facts? Let's say you thought that morality was some form of social construction. Would that mean that you were really an, a legal positivist? So let's say you say legal facts depend on social facts and moral facts, but moral facts depend on social facts themselves. Does that mean that you're a legal positivist? And what I want to say is no. What the way, the, kind of the methodological assumption in jurisprudence is that when we say that legal facts ultimately depend on social facts or moral facts, we don't really mean ultimately. We don't mean that uh, legal facts, if you're a positivist, really depend at the end of the day on rock bottom social facts, because it doesn't seem as if social facts themselves 
are metaphysically basic either. They probably depend on physical facts and, uh, and micro physical facts and maybe mental facts and lots, lots of other things. Um, what, what, what we do in jurisprudence is we like draw kind of a methodological line between social and moral facts and whatever facts that they themselves rest on. Because you don't want to do legal theory and worry about tons of methodological issues that seem not related to the law. So let's say you thought that legal facts depended on moral facts, but that moral facts were ultimately reducible to social facts and they themselves are reducible to microphysical facts, yada, yada, yada. But you don't, you don't want to take on those questions about the constitution of morality and then the constitution of social facts. I mean, one's a subject for metaethics, another thing, another one's a, a subject for um, the philosophy of social sciences or social ontology or something like that. You want to kind of bracket those questions because if you don't bracket those questions, you'll never get to the to the jurisprudentially interesting questions. So. When I say legal facts ultimately depend on social facts or moral facts as the main dividing line between legal positivism and natural law theory, the ultimately, that word ultimately really needs to be understood in a special methodological sense. That is, we're not, we're not really trying to get at the rock bottom metaphysics of the world, but assuming for the purposes of discussion that moral facts and social facts are metaphysically basic, which of course they're not, but for purposes of discussion, we have to kind of stop somewhere if we're going to make some progress in, um, in jurisprudence. So if you think that morality ultimately depends on social facts, you'd still be considered a natural law theorist if you thought that legal facts were grounded in those moral facts, okay? Look, I don't make the rules. Um, that's the that's that's the way the debate goes. Um, I think it makes sense to do it that way. Um, that's the way we were going to do it, and I hope that that clears up some confusion, um, which is generated naturally by saying that legal facts ultimately depend on social facts or moral facts, so it, since neither social facts or moral facts themselves um, depend on other facts as well. Okay, so. What we're going to do is we're going to jump right in in the next part to the jurisprudential theory of John Austin. Okay, the last part of the of this episode, a little Kanye West in power, which is appropriate because John Austin thought that all law was ultimately grounded in power. And so what we're going to do is we're going to lay out that theory right now. It's Austin's theory is really quite intuitive. <clears throat> this is a little quick story. When my daughter was five years old, um, we, you know, when I tucked her into bed, um, we would 
often, um, you know, we would have conversations and she'd always start by saying, you know, what, what, what did you do today? Which, by which she meant, what did you have for lunch today? Um, but I, um, I, one time I said to her, you know, I was, I'm working on this book. And then she said, well, what's the book about? And I said, what is law? And then she said, well, what is law? I, I mean, she must have been falling asleep or something because there's no way she was really interested in that. Um, and I kind of found myself in the attempt to explain what law was to her actually stating the essence of Austin's theory. So it's kinda, it is very intuitive theory. I mean, I, I think I said something like it's the, there are these things that you have to do and if you don't do it, you get punished, like you get a timeout um, from the police, you know, some, something like that, um, which is really kind of Austin's theory of law. But let, let, me, let me go through it um, uh, in, in, in some detail right now. So the way I always think about Austin's theory of law is he thought that law was, had two parts. He had a theory of rules and a theory of sovereignty. And if you put those two things together, rules issued by the sovereign, you got law. So law is equal to rules plus sovereignty. So what did Austin mean by rules? Um, well, according to, all, according to Austin, all rules are commands. Well, what did he mean by a command? Well, Austin meant something very specific by command. He, he thought a command is an expression of a wish. That's the first thing. It was a wish that you do something. It was backed by a threat to inflict an evil in case the wish is not fulfilled. So I tell you to do X, and if you don't do X, there's a threat um, to impose some cost on you if you don't do it, issued by somebody who is willing and able to act on the threat. So if I were to tell, let's say, my uh, kids to you know pick up their stuff, that, that that is not a command, according to Austin. It's only pick up your stuff or I'm going to, I don't know, take away your bank card or something like that. Um, so there needs to, and, and I, I ha, in order to give the, the command, I have to be willing and able to actually carry out the threat. Austin thought that obligations were, were, analytically related to commands in the following sense, which is that he thought that um, uh, somebody is under an obligation when, when another expresses a wish that um, they act or refrain from acting in a certain way, and the, expressor, and the expressor is willing and able to inflict an evil if the wish is not fulfilled. So if I say, pick up your stuff, or I'm going to take away the bank card, um, that then my kids are obligated to pick it up because I've expressed a wish. I've threatened to impose a cost on them if they don't do it. Now notice, of course, that the definition of a command and definition of obligation are, are very similar. In fact, they're analytically related. So anytime anybody commands another to do something, they're also obligated to do it. 
finally, uh, Austin thought that all rules are general commands. So if I say, you know, pick up your coat, that's not a rule. That's a command. I'm sorry. Pick up your coat or I'm going to take away your bank card. That is a command, but that's not a rule. If I say, if you, if I see you not picking up your coat, then I'm going to take away your bank card. That is a rule because it has an element of generality. It's not pick up this coat on this one occasion, but if you ever don't pick up your coat, then I'm going to impose this cost on you, then I've issued a rule. Okay? So remember I said law is equal to rules plus sovereignty. So I just gave a theory of what rules are, the general commands. Uh, what's, who's the sovereign? The sovereign, according to Austin, is somebody who, number one, is habitually obeyed by the bulk of the population. So the, com the general commands that, are, that uh, he, she, they issue must be obeyed by most of the people most of the time. It's not necessary that, the, that people obey every general command, and it's not necessary that the evil uh, which is threatened be enforced every single time. It's just for Austin necessary that these threats are made and that most people obey them most of the time. So first, there, to be the sovereign, you need habitual obedience. And number two, the sovereign must not habitually obey anyone else. So a sovereign is somebody who everyone basically listens to, most people basically listen to, and the sovereign doesn't basically listen to anyone else. Okay, so that's the sovereign. So if we had to put it all together in a statement about the identity of law, what makes law law, we would say what makes law law is that it's general commands backed by threats of sanctions issued by somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. See, one of the really satisfying things about Austin's theory is you can state what law is in one sentence. Since law is equal to rules plus sovereignty and rules are general commands and sovereign is somebody who is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else, it's really easy to say what law is. And it's also actually pretty easy to derive certain necessary properties from the identity of law. So, for example, um, given what obligations are, namely they're, uh, what is created by the expression of a wish backed by threats of sanctions, it turns out that all laws, since they're general commands, impose obligations. See? All laws impose obligations as a necessary truth by virtue of the fact that law is what it is and not something else. This is really, it's, I hope you're getting the sense that um, Austin's theory is so attractive is, is not only because it relates to something that seems very characteristic of law, namely the, the element of power, but also the idea that it's, it, it, it's so simple and it's so easy to derive other conclusions from it. 
It has other really attractive features. Um, first of all, it's able to answer the identity question about what is the identity of laws. We're able to derive necessary properties about law from it, but it also gives a really good, or I don't know, really good, but it gives a, a simple solution to the chicken egg problem. So does the, does the law depend on eggs? The rules or on chickens, the authority? And the answer is it depends on chickens. That is, legal facts ultimately bottom out in chickens in the sovereign. The sovereign is the sovereign not by virtue of the fact that there's some other rule, some other egg which confers authority on it, but rather in just by virtue of the fact that the sovereign is habitually obeyed and habitually obeys no one else. Habitual obedience, is th these are not normative ideas, these are descriptive ideas. Whether you habitually obey somebody or not, that's just a matter of social fact. Secondly, notice how Austin's solution to the chicken-egg puzzle doesn't run into the problem of violating Hume's law. It, doesn't, it, it solves Hume's puzzle too. Why? Well, let's go back to the, the definition that Austin gives of what an obligation is. An obligation is what's created when there's an expression of a wish backed by threats of sanctions. Well, it turns out that obligations are not normative things. And sentences that express the existence of obligations are not normative sentences. They are descriptive sentences. So what we have in Austin's theory is not only a theory which solves the chicken-egg puzzle, but does so in a way which doesn't violate Hume's law because obligations are descriptive are, are just, uh, the concept of obligations is a descriptive concept. Sentences asserting their existence are descriptive sentences. And any legal argument that has obligations as conclusions, descriptive conclusions, need not have normative premises because you need normative premises to derive an ought from an is. But if you're not deriving an ought, then all you need are ises. All you need are descriptive premises in order to, to derive a descriptive conclusion. So Austin's theory is really cool in being able to solve both problems at the same time while also giving a somewhat complete answer. Now, many of you may know that Hart described Austin's theory of law as the gunman writ large, and you can see why this would make sense. I mean, if for Austin, the law is general commands backed by threats of sanctions, then it's kind of like the gunman saying, your money or your life. There's some tweaks you need to make to that threat, your money or your life, to make it more law-like. And this is the writ large part. So what 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 Hart said was that if you want to make for Austin the threat your money or your life more law like, you have to add certain features to it. Like you have to make that threat have a standing quality to it. That is that people still feel threatened 
by that command, even when the gunman is not around. And that threat has to be generalized. So it's not enough that the, that the gunman says, your money or your life, but rather, give me your money every April 15th, or else I'm going to impose some costs on you that you don't want. And the gunman himself has to have certain properties that legal authorities have. So there needs to be some kind of supremacy. So it's not just that the gunman is one among many gunmen, but it has to be kind of the head gunman in the sense of that the, this gunman is habitually obeyed, number one. And number two is that this gunman has to be kind of separate from other gunmen that might exist in other territories. So for Austin, it would be, this is under hard surrendering, it would have to be that the gunman habitually is habitually obeyed, but habitually obeys no one else, so that this gunman doesn't listen to any other um, uh, gunman. So the ultimate idea here is that law rests fundamentally on power, on the habits of obedience, um, on the expression of wishes backed by threats of sanctions, and this is what uh, law is. Interestingly enough, that this, this at least in the Anglophone world, uh, this theory was dominant for a century. It was until Hart came along uh, and wrote the concept of law that virtually everyone was uh, an Austinian. Everyone just accepted Austin's theory as being basically right. There were tweaks here and there, but speakers in the Anglophone world just accepted it. What's amazing is how unbelievably wrong the theory is. And so what we're going to do in the next episode is begin to dismantle it uh, by going through Hart's critique in Chapter 3 of the Concept of Law. Um, it is a really one of the great uh, uh, deconstructions in my opinion, of, of all philosophical time. Um, and uh, we will go through it uh, step by step. Um, it's really kind of fascinating um, how Hart really just takes the whole thing apart and then rebuilds it. So we're going to do that next time. I hope everyone stays in, stays safe, and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.